Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. I want to open this hour of Mornings with Carmen with a question about labeling and mislabeling. So if something were labeled a tuna sandwich, Paul Perot, you would expect there to be what in it? Uh, Tuna? Tuna. There you go. All right. So there's apparently a big controversy brewing, a lawsuit, in fact, over whether or not there is actual tuna in the Subway tuna sandwich. Now... Subway, in its defense, says this is ridiculous, a spurious lawsuit. It's just designed to, uh, you know, bring them bad press. So we're not uh, we're not participating in that. We're just asking the question along with apparently a lot of other people, including The New York Times, who has an extensive investigative reporting piece on this today. Um, is there actual tuna in the Subway tuna sandwich? And so how might you go about answering the question? Well, you might just taste the sandwich and say, tastes like tuna to me, uh, you might go so far as to buy a bunch of Subway tuna sandwiches, take the tuna out, put it in a, a deep freeze, the, each little portion, and then send it off to be um, PCR tested in a lab to find out whether or not there's any actual tuna in there and come to find out, well, at least by this one investigative reporting effort by the New York Times, there's no tuna DNA discernible in the tuna in the Subway tuna sandwiches that at least this one journalist bought at three Subway stores across um, L.A. So um, here's why I'm bringing this up. I got a couple of approaches to this conversation today as we enter into the conversations taking place in the world, this being among them. What are you eating? Do you actually know what you're eating? And might it be mislabeled? So there is one conversational topic for us to have today. Um, Maybe a deeper one is what's eating you? That might be a deeper question to ask after you ask the question, what am I eating and why am I eating it and what's actually in it? But I think the mislabeling question is a really good one. I think there's a lot of mislabeled Christians walking around in the culture. People who carry the label of Christian, but there's no discernible Jesus DNA in them. And no, I don't mean, you know, like if you took a blood test, you're going to be able to uh, figure out if they're related to Jesus. What I'm talking about is whether or not we bear out in our lives significant evidence that we are actually people redeemed, redeemed in Christ. Um, People who Uh, who by one degree of glory to another are more and more conformed to the image of Christ, that we're actually Christians, Christ people uh, walking around in the world today. If you, I mean, you know, you can't be PCR tested for that, but you could be examined. Your life could be examined for that. Uh, Am I an accurately labeled Christian or frankly, am I mislabeled? Am I walking around in the world um, as a tuna sandwich with no tuna? 
So this is my provocative question to get us going in this hour. John Brandon, Forbes columnist, Forbes columnist and digital media director here at Northwestern Media, also the author of The 7-Minute Solution, joins me next. We'll be right back. My friend and colleague John Brandon is back. You can find him at Forbes.com. You can also find him at 7MinuteSolution.com. John, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Social media detox might work, might not work. (laughs) Yeah, so this is something that I've been writing about a lot for over the years. And I, I think I have to be careful and say that social media does have value. But there are times when... We want to just take a break from it, and we think that that's going to work long term. The problem uh, that I've been finding with social media obsession or addiction or whatever you want to call it is that taking a break doesn't really work uh, to stem the tide of doom scrolling and you're standing in line at the grocery store and you just find yourself going through Instagram over and over and over again. And there's been a lot of research about this actually about why this obsession and addiction even occurs. Uh, It's two reasons. One is because we get a dopamine hit in our brain when we see those rewards. So we see that someone, you know, that we've had 30 people click like on a post that we did, or we see somebody is uh, commenting and saying favorable things. We get a dopamine hit for that. And then the second reason is not as widely known, and there's a lot of research on this too. It's called an elusive reward. And what this means is that we're pursuing after something and we don't know what it is, but we think we should keep pursuing it. And this is what causes social media addiction and obsession. Uh, The problem with taking a break, so I've wrote about this at my Forbes column, and I'm just trying to explain to people that it only lasts for a while. It's kind of like if you take a break from eating chocolate cake for a month, And then you go right back to eating chocolate cake. And let's say you start having chocolate cake every single day. Uh, Obviously, that break didn't really work. So what I actually suggest is something that is more uh, what I call throttled usage. It means kind of doing social media in short spurts. I say seven minutes at a time because that's how long we have a sustained attention span. But uh, dealing with it, anything that you're kind of obsessed with or addicted with, Taking a break from it for short periods of time has been known to not work. So if there's any way you can just say, I'm only going to check social media for seven minutes at a time, um, you will find out that you become less and less obsessed with it. So again, this would be a part of the seven-minute solution conversation. Um, Seven minutes tends to strangely work for lots of things. So it's just kind of cool that you've identified that and that this is one of those. I like this idea of um, of uh, controlled usage uh, because it feels like moderation. It feels like a a lifestyle change as opposed to like fasting, like right. So um, 
people who have right. tried fasting, you can only fast for so long and then you have to go back to eating. And so how are you going to eat differently when you go back? So it's one thing to do a social media detox as maybe the Kickstarter to controlled usage, but you're not gonna, in all likelihood, just remain off of social media forever. And so how, when you go back, are you going to go back? Do you have a plan? Is it going to be in moderation? And this seven minute solution gives us one approach to doing that. Right, right. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up fasting because obviously God never asked us to fast forever. You know, he asked us to fast for periods of time, but uh, you can't sustain it. So anything that you can't sustain you know, when it comes to social media, there are a lot of good things about it. If you completely, you know, cancel all of your accounts, uh, my daughter is a church planter with her husband in Austria. They post on social media all the time about updates for their church. Um, I'd be missing out on that. So there, there's value in social media. It's very similar to, like I said, uh, or actually like you said with dieting, the fat diet say, well, don't eat any bread at all. You know, no more carbs for you. And the problem with that is there actually are nutrients in bread and you need bread. So cutting it out for a while is going to give you kind of a little bit of a boost of confidence maybe. And that's probably okay. But long term, it's better to control how much bread you eat. Have a little bit of bread. Don't, don't just eat bread every single day, all day long, you know. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, John Brandon and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about another uh, one of his pieces he's got posted at Forbes. And it's a conversation about apologies. And, well, it has an interesting source. HBO Max can show us how to do an apology. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is amazing So HBO Max, like many um, organizations and even individuals, has an email distribution network to which people subscribe. And, well, they got a strange email um, on Thursday evening, and it resulted in HBO Max then taking to Twitter and explaining what happened. So um, bring us into the narrative at that point. Sure. And uh, yeah, this is a shout out to my, I have two student workers from the University of Northwestern working for me this summer. So a shout out to them. I, I will. Oh, we should also give a little, hey, we should give a little shout out to Sam, who's interning right now and sitting in studio with Paul Perot. So <laughs> Sam, listen up, because this could happen to you. Oh, yeah, that's probably not the way we should say it. That sounds doomsy. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I don't know how many emails went out, but uh, it might have been in the tens of millions for all I know. Uh, I'm visiting a station up here in Duluth, uh, and they, the people up here in, in Duluth actually got this email, too, and I received it as well. And what it said is it, it was just like a test email. It looked like it came from a bot. But the thing that's so interesting about this is on Twitter, the HBO Max account actually posted an apology for it. And the way they did it was very interesting to me because they said that it, they blamed the intern and they said that the intern sent this email out to everybody. But then they said they're kind of helping the intern cope through it. And I, as someone who has worked with a lot of students over the years, I kind of felt the pain of that and thought, you know, that's a good way to do an apology. Um, 
you know, this is something that's come up on social media a lot. How do you apologize? Do you fess up to things? Do you kind of clarify? Do you sort of uh, try to do smoke and mirrors and say, no, it really wasn't us? And the reason why I like this one is they kind of made a little bit of a joke about it, but they also said, you know, we're commiserating with this person. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was just one email. It happens to all of us. And then the reaction to it was everybody just started piling on, not in a bad way, but in a good way. They said, you know, this has happened to me. I sent out an email once to, you know, a million people. Um, I've been there before. And so the reaction kind of proved that that's a good way to do an apology. And I, and I thought it'd be interesting to talk about this from a spiritual context, Carmen, because I've been there before myself. And I've been married for 33 years. I know how this works. I think when you do an apology, it just has to include something about, here's where I really went wrong. I want to start with myself. I don't want to clarify anything. I don't want to explain it away. I don't want to blame somebody else. I'm just going to fess up and say, here's where I went wrong with this. I think that when we talk about apology, you know, just a lot of folks um, burr up and they say to themselves, I don't have anything to apologize for. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to cast blame on somebody else. I'm going to shift responsibility. And like you, I appreciate that, you know, HBO Max, although saying, yeah, I mean, it, it actually was the intern, but that's okay. And we're working through it. Like we didn't cast the person into the outer darkness and never <laughs> let them back into the process. Like we're, it's an intern. We're using this as a learning experience. It also, there's a demonstration of grace in this as well. And, um, and how, you know, we're all learning, like we're all learners. We make mistakes. It's a part of being human and a part of working together. Yeah. And then you kind of wonder, like, how did HBO Max stumble into grace? And I would say that grace is not something that man created. It's something God created. And we're created in his image. So it's not that surprising to me when kind of secular society sort of stumbles into this. What's more common, though, is the is major companies tend to do. Uh, this is called the art of the apology. It means how do you do an apology? And the most typical thing is they ignore it. And they just kind of hope it goes away. And I've seen this as a journalist for so many years. I've seen this backfire many, many, many times. They wait a month. They wait two months. Everybody finds out about the email. Maybe the New York Times is on the case and they find out it was an intern, you know, when, once they're done with the uh, tuna gate that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> uh, but, but they, you know, you find out eventually. So you might as well, from a spiritual standpoint, you might as well just fess up to these things because we all do bad things. We're all sinners, you know, saved by grace. But it's easier to just kind of move quickly into the confession of these things. And and I love when that happens in the secular world because it just, to me, proves all the verses that say, this is the way to do things. Come to me, you know, those, those of you who are kind of uh, carrying a burden and just release it to me. And when you do that, there's just this freedom and there's this peace that comes instead of carrying that load around. All right, let's jump to one more topic, um, because there's just a lot of folks that have been remote working now for well over a year. Many are continuing to remote work. Many are looking for remote work 
talk with us about um, what's happening in some places and spaces in relationship to remote positions. Yeah, again, with major companies kind of trying to figure this out, Google and Microsoft, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where uh, major companies originally said that you could work at home permanently, and then they realized something about how that actually works and how collaboration works. And this gets into one of my favorite topics, which is uh, tacit knowledge, kind of figuring out things. If you're in the office and you happen to bump into somebody in the hallway and they tell you something about maybe some new app or some new trend, maybe in technology. And the, the thing about this is that when you're in a remote office, you, you're just not going to hear about any of that. And I'm not talking about you know office gossip. I'm talking about things that are really important to the organization that you work for, and you're missing out on it. Uh, there's this concept called self-onboarding that's been kind of making the circles lately. And what it means is you're a remote worker. You don't have any of those conversations in the hallway. You don't even really talk to your boss too much. And then what happens is you have to onboard yourself because you just don't have the tacit knowledge that existed previously. And so big companies are saying, you know, this is actually way more important than we realized. So what they're suggesting is maybe a hybrid approach or they're doing something a little bit differently there may be saying people have to be in the office two or three days a week. But the trend that I'm seeing is that I think it's just going to kind of go back to the way it used to be before the pandemic, where people are kind of expected to mostly be in the office. Unless you have a job that maybe it's, you know, it's the perfect job for doing remotely and you don't need that tacit knowledge or you don't need any uh, information or collaboration from your coworkers. Um, part of this too, Carmen, is I think we're all just really, really sick of doing uh, video calls on Skype and Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all the rest. So I'm hearing that um, there are some companies who are saying, you know, hey, the job is in New York. And if you are not living in New York and therefore working with us in New York, um, we're not going to pay you a New York salary for the job that it's going to be, you know, there's going to, you're going to be compensated differently. Um, and then this, uh, this very interesting um, piece about, companies asking people who live in Colorado, Colorado residents, not to apply for remote positions because Colorado has a law that requires um, companies to report um, those wages, like in a in a different way, dis disclosing the expected salary or pay range for positions. And that's not something that companies, uh, major companies are necessarily comfortable with. It's an interesting, interesting day and interesting time in America. Yeah, and I think what you landed on there, too, is you have these major companies like Google, and they say, you know, you can just go ahead and work remote. Everything's fine. And even though they're multi-billion dollar companies, it's like somebody realizes, oh, except in Colorado or except in this state or, no, the health insurance isn't going to work quite right in this state or this area. And I think this is just the nature of big business, large companies, you know, it's still run by humans who are flawed and uh, they find out these things and it kind of points them in a new direction and everybody's like, oops, we kind of made a mistake with that. Let's redirect everything uh, kind of back to the office. 
Yeah, a lot of, lot of flux out there, and I do think there's going to be a lot of getting back to the office. John Brandon, as always, thank you so much. Joining us today remotely from our station in Duluth. So a little shout-out to all the folks there. Uh, you can find John at his Forbes column at Forbes.com. You can also find him at 7MinuteSolution.com. We'll be right back. All day I faced a barren waste without the taste of water. All right, why is Paul playing a little ditty there about water? Well, he's playing it because, drum roll, I'll let you tell them. What is today, Paul? Today is National Hydration Day. National Hydration Day. Yes, make sure you're drinking plenty of fluids. Yeah, plenty of fluids, plenty of fluids. So, um, you know, what would be my conversational hook for that as a Christian? Well, um, I could think about whether or not I'm actually hungering and thirsting after righteousness or whether or not I just have a gnawing pit for the things of this world, right? So do I genuinely hunger and thirst for righteousness? Um, And will my thirst only be slaked by Christ? Like, right, what does it really look like for me to hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, which can only be slaked with the person of Jesus Christ, with his presence and his companionship and his covering and his infilling? And so when we think about that, um, maybe uh, we could go and spend some time reading in John chapter 7, um, where Jesus stands up and says, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his inmost being, from him will flow rivers of living water. That would take us back to the conversation that Jesus has in John chapter 4, um, when he's passing through Samaria and he meets the woman um, at the well, and they have a conversation, and Jesus says to her at one point, you know, if you knew to whom you were speaking, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And she's, and they have this great conversation about living water. So um, let me encourage you to check those verses out. There's also, you know, the, um, the prophecy in Zechariah about uh, the living waters that are going to flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and the other half toward the Western Sea. John in Revelation uh, chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22 talks about those same realities, the future coming reality um, of living water in, in, in the streets of Jerusalem, for lack of a better way of describing it. I'm thinking here of Revelation 22 at the beginning. When John says, uh, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It was in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing all kinds of fruit, yielding fruit in every season. Um, The leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations. I guess when we think about water, we think about National Hydration Day. Uh, as Christians, let us be hydrated with the one who is the living water and let us drink deeply today that our lives might well up as living water to eternal life. Next up, I'm going to have a conversation with pastor and author. Uh, yeah, I got to think about who I'm having next. Jared Stevens. I've got the book right here. The Always God. He hasn't changed and you are not forgotten. Next up, Jarrett Stevens. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. 
Jesus has seen every back street, back seat, backhanded moment of our lives, and he has resolved, my grace is enough. I can cleanse these people. I will wash away their betrayals. For that reason, we must make the upper room of mercy our home address. Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You are the creation of a good God. You are made in his image. You are destined to reign in an eternal kingdom. Secure in who you are, you can do what Jesus did. Throw aside the robe of rights and expectation and make the most courageous of moves. Wash feet. This is Max Locato, and this is how happiness happens. Pastor Jarrett Stevens joins me now. He is the senior pastor of Champion Forest Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. We have talked before about The Mountains Are Calling, and he's here today to talk about his latest book, The Always God. Jarrett, welcome back. Carmen, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So um, your your book, this, this book, The Always God, is really addressing, um, I think, a deep, nagging question um, that pops up in lots of us from time to time. Is God really present? Is God really working? Is God always faithful? Um, he did lots of great things way back then, um, and people experienced his presence and his miraculous power and his faithfulness. But what about me? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is a question that people are asking. And, you know, Carmen, I wrote this book during the uh, quarantine when we were on kind of a nationwide timeout, right? And there was no school, there was no work, everybody was at home, and uh, a lot of questions were being asked, just what's what's happening? Of course, we had loved ones that were getting sick, some were dying, you had people being laid off. And so these questions uh, were being asked. Yeah, I've been a pastor for uh, a long time now. And and that question of God, do you see what's going on? And if you do see, do you care? And so uh, we, sometimes we have that feeling of I'm praying, but I don't feel like my prayers are getting past the ceiling of the room that I'm in at the time. And so I just had it in my heart to, to write this book. And it's broken up into three segments. Uh, the always God. One is he's always here. And that's what the first part is about. God is always, you know, the scripture says that he is a very present help in time of need. And so I just work out in that first section of the book that God always sees us. He always hears us when he pray and he always speaks to us. When we open his word, God always speaks to us. I think sometimes we hear people say, man, God spoke to me. Uh, the other day, and we're thinking, man, something must be wrong with me because he ain't talking to me. So, uh, but when we open his word, uh, he is. And then that second part is he's always working. And, uh, you know, uh, a song that was real popular last year was Waymaker. Even when you don't feel it, he's moving. Even when you don't see it, he's working. And so uh, that's that whole idea of what God's doing behind the scenes. Even when we don't see it, see it, even when we don't feel it, God is working. And then that last section, Carmen, is about how God's always faithful. You know, the scripture says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's never failed, and he's not about to start failing us now. And so just talk about in those two two chapters of the final part of the book that he's always faithful, that he can be trusted, and you never have to lose your hope in him. 
there's a, there's kind of a song for each one of those as you you know as right. you go through that I'm like right we could um, we could sing um, something in relationship to each one of those realities and we you know we know we know these things to be true God has um, throughout all of human history uh, revealed himself as the one who is there right the the God who is there that's who he is and the God who has communicated that he is there which is just I just think this amazing act of grace on his part that he would share so much about himself with us and how he has worked in the context of people's lives so that we would not only see historic evidence of it but be able to recognize when God is working in our day and time as well and then the faithfulness of God like if God is anything God is faithful Um, and so I appreciate the way that you unfold these deep theological truths and you show us in the Bible where it's true but you also like show us how to how to recognize it in our own lives. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think it's so important that, you, you know, uh, because God is the, the God that separated the sea and the nation of Israel walked on, the God who, you know, through the prophet Elijah called down fire, that God's still moving and, and, and living today. And so I try in every chapter to share a story, whether it's a personal story or a, per, a story from someone from our faith community that has experienced God uh, moving in the truth that I'm talking about uh, in that in that specific chapter, uh, but I really do think you know what happens is uh, we 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 are deceived by our feelings and emotions. Uh, we 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 live off oftentimes what we feel, and that's a scary place to be. I, I talk to people when I'm walking with them in a discipleship relationship. I just kind of draw them an old school train illustration, right? And the the engine on the train is truth. And the caboose is always feelings. Sometimes we get that mixed up and we let our feelings drive the engine of our life. And if we do that, I tell people our life is going to look like an EKG heart chart. It's going to be up, down, up, down, up, down, because feelings come and go. Feelings are deceptive. But the truth of God's word and the truth of his character never, ever changes. And so we always have to let uh, truth drive the engine of our life. And that's what I try to get to in this book, that look— even if you don't feel like God sees you, even if you don't see him working, I assure you, based on the truth of God's word, based on the truth of his character, he is working. And I think the subtitle, Carmen, says it all, that he hasn't changed. God has not changed over time. And here's the key part. You are not forgotten. Because I think when we're going through a circumstance, a trouble in life, life's thrown us a curveball, we think, God, you've forgotten me. And it's just not true. God doesn't forget. He doesn't work on our timetable sometimes. Sometimes, and we've got to accept that. And I work through some of that in the book, uh, but he hasn't forgotten us. I think that one of the questions, oh, we have to take a brief break. And then when we come back, I'm going to ask you to address this question. Um, like, will I ever get to the place where I don't question some of those things, where I don't have those moments of doubt? So we're going to have that conversation with Pastor Jarrett Stevens in just a moment. We are talking about his brand new book, The Always God. He hasn't changed, and you are not forgotten. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Pastor Jarrett Stevens from Champions Forest uh, Church in Houston, Texas. You can find him at jarrettstevens.com. We're talking today about his brand new book, The Always God. 
Um, Jared, I might like theologically assent to everything that you have said. Uh, I recognize that God is present. I recognize that God is working. I recognize that God is faithful. Um, he's always seeing, he's always hearing, he's always speaking. Um, I am not always without doubt. So Mm -hmm. will I ever get there? I don't, you know, faith, for faith to be present, there's always an element of doubt. That's what makes mm-hmm. faith, faith. And so uh, I don't know that you're ever going to fully arrive. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live, planted all these churches in the New Testament, wrote one third of it. You know, he said, I have not arrived. And I think there was an element of that where, you know, we're never going to be made perfect. Certainly some of us are going to struggle with doubt more than others. Uh, but uh, I don't think we can ever say that we're going to uh, arrive. And, and I think what's really important is that we don't let our questions and our doubts drive us further away from God, but we le- rather let them allow us to lean into God. And so I think it's the posture of our heart when it comes to these questions and it comes to these doubts, because that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where faith uh, really comes alive, is that when I have these doubts, what do I do with them? Do I lean out? Or do I lean in? And I just want to encourage those that are listening to us today that faith is is leaning in even in the midst of doubt. And I just, you know, I think of that verse in Hebrews 11, 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so that's how I'd answer that question, Carmen. I'd just say, what do you do with your doubt? Uh, if you're If you're leaning out, that's not good. Uh, if you're leaning in, you're only going to get stronger. And the next time doubt comes your way, you'll have a um, confidence in the in the faithfulness of God because he's proved himself in the past. You know, as a pastor and as a Christian friend, um, you deal with people who are literally dealing with everything, um, death being among those. Um, I'm wondering if you just like to speak for a moment into you know, the realities that people are dealing with today. Um, you know, I, I I loved how you addressed the question of childlessness when you're, you know, when you're talking about even the most wonderful of things. Um, and I loved how you shared with us about Zach um, in the very opening chapter. Just maybe help people get a little view into the humanity of the book. It is a theological book. I mean, really, if you think about it that way, but it is, um, it's also really deeply touching and personal. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, that's my prayer in it is that people can, you know, read it and really feel like they're having a conversation with me. It is theological. You know, you talk about, uh, Zach, my buddy, Zach, who was one of my college roommates back in the day. Well, it's theological because uh, I write about the God who sees. You know, one one of the ways that God revealed himself in the Scripture is by his names. And uh, one of the names that he revealed himself uh, by is El-Roi, which means the God who sees and and is personal, the God who sees me. And I work out that theological story about Hagar being run into the desert with her son, and she feels like she's going to die. And the angel shows up and says, you're going to be okay. And she says, this is this is the God who sees me. It's personal. Well, then I tell the story of my buddy, Zach, who on his 42nd birthday, um, you, you know, gets a motorcycle and it just gets out from under him. It's an accident. 
and he hits oncoming traffic and dies tragically, leaves behind a three-year-old son, a beautiful wife and family. And I think about uh, his wife often, uh, Kelly, who they were, they were so strong in their faith. And yet, you know, what do I, what do I say as a pastor to Kelly? Can I say anything to her that, that reminds her that, look, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. And so I just tie that story of Hagar who learned that God sees me and I attach it to Kelly's life. And I don't know that I could ever say anything to help her pain and hurt, but I can say, you know what? He is the God who sees you. And the scripture says that he collects our tears in a bottle. So it's stories like that, Carmen, mm-hmm. that I kind of try to tie through the the whole book to just give hope and uh, to give a little real life application to these great Bible stories and the th- theology we know, but hopefully we can grasp it with our hearts through these stories. So some of what you um, give away in here through the stories that you tell and the way that you reflect on um, the the reality of who God is and how that works itself out in your own life. And you don't do this, Jarrett, um, expressly. But I want to say to you, this is what comes through. Part of what we're doing as Christians with one another is in our own lives bearing out the way this works. Like, because you continue to see Kelly and hear what's happening and speak into her life, like the reality of who God is, is like you're bearing witness through your own life to who he is. I mean, I think there's this incarnational ministry part of this where Christians bear witness to the character and reality of of the always God by being the people who then enflesh that in the lives of others. And I, I don't want people to miss that. Um, this is not about a God who is out there somewhere. It is also uh, about a God who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus Christ, inhabits reality right now, right here in the context of human relationships. That's right. And what does the scripture say that you have been, com- you know, we're to comfort people with the comfort with which we've been comforted. And so God allows yeah. things in our life that we are to go through. Uh, and why do we go through those things? It's so we can minister and serve. And in your phrase is exactly right. Be, you know, it's the incarnational ministry of Christ. It's the ministry of presence, oftentimes just being there. And uh, that's why God allows us to go through uh, things you know, I tell a story about my brother who was away from the Lord for 17 years. When I talk about God working to pursue the lost, well, I can't tell you how many people I've been able to encourage through the years to say, "Don't you give up praying for your lost family member or friend that doesn't know Jesus? If He came through for me after 17 years, He can come through for you." Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, the book is the Always God. If you've uh, if you've ever questioned whether or not you know. God is unchanging and reliable. This is a great conversational book. It's theologically rich, but it's deeply personal. Pastor Jarrett Stevens is the author. You can find him at his website, jarrettstevens.com. The book is The Always God. Thank you so much, Jarrett, for joining us today. Carmen, thanks for having me on. Always good to be with you. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right, this coming Sunday evening, we're going to do a Conversations with Carmen live stream event. You can get all the information by texting the word EVENT to 877-933-2484. Text the word EVENT 
to 877-933-2484 or visit us at myfaithradio.com. You need to subscribe to our YouTube channel, like our Facebook page, and then you can view the event stream on Sunday, June the 27th. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to engage you and I, yep, in real conversation with each other. So I want you to bring your questions or your topics. Like these are the places and spaces where it's been really hard for me to share the biblical perspective on things happening in my family or in my community, in my workplace, in the world. We're going to work through that together. So you can think of Conversations with Carmen as like a Christian town hall, a little bit of an ask anything. It's an opportunity for us to get together and bring the mind of Christ to bear on what's actually happening in real life. So again, text the word EVENT to 877-933-2484. Visit us online at myfaithradio.com. Subscribe to Faith Radio's YouTube channel. Like our Facebook page. That's where you're going to view the live stream event and participate on Sunday, June the 27th. All right. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.